Welcome to Holy Smoke, the Spectator's Religion Podcast. I'm Damien Thompson. For this first episode of 2022, I've interviewed Archbishop Nikitas Lulius, who's spiritual leader of Greek Orthodox Christians in Britain. His title is Archbishop of Thyatira and Great Britain, and he's responsible for 108 parishes and monasteries in Britain and Ireland some of which have wonderfully evocative names. Saints Ambrose and Stylianus, Milton Keynes, the community of Saints Raphael, Nicholas and Irene of Lesbos, Enfield, Northern District. He's a third-generation Greek-American from Tampa, Florida. In the Orthodox world, he has the reputation of a tough guy. He actually looks a bit like a retired Hollywood action hero, with impressive academic credentials and a rock-solid faith. When the ecumenical patriarch Bartholomew of Constantinople decided he needed a metropolitan to protect Orthodox Christians in Hong Kong and Southeast Asia, he chose Nikitas. And later, the Archbishop established himself as the Orthodox world's toughest campaigner against human trafficking. No one will be surprised if, after his stint in Britain, he's given even bigger responsibilities. And perhaps I should say that this isn't a particularly easy time to be exercising authority in the Greek Orthodox Church or the Orthodox world generally. Here's some background. There are two major Orthodox traditions, the Greek, headed by an ecumenical patriarch of Constantinople, and the Russian, based in Moscow. The Greek, rooted in the former Byzantium, the New Rome, is, of course, the senior branch. The Russian Orthodox Church has always accepted this, secure in the knowledge that its secular rulers, Tsars, Soviet dictators, and now Putin, would never allow the Greeks to damage the interests of the Third Rome, as it refers to Moscow. Then, in 2018, things fell apart shockingly fast. Bartholomew, the 270th Ecumenical Patriarch, tried to grant the Ukrainian Orthodox Church full independence from Moscow. In response, the Russian Orthodox Church declared him to be schismatic, forbidding its 150 million members even to receive the sacraments from Greek Orthodox churches. It's the biggest schism in Orthodoxy since 1467, when the Russian church declared its independence. That breach took nearly a century to heal, and perhaps this one is worse. We touched on this very sensitive subject in our interview, but you won't be surprised to hear that we also spent quite a lot of time talking about orthodoxy and the modern Catholic Church of Pope Francis. But actually, it was Archbishop Nikitas who brought up the subject of the Pope, whose attitude towards the ancient Western liturgy rather puzzles the Archbishop, as you'll hear later. But he began, unusually for such a senior Greek Orthodox bishop, by praising the current Bishop of Rome. I think, for example... He's been very embracing of people with challenges, issues, disease, body disfigurement, the poor. And we have to remember that in the church, I can speak as an Orthodox, but I think just as a clergyman, there's a place for everyone. Because the church is that place to give us hope. And that's one of the purposes of the church. Not only to live love, in the Christian aspect and understanding, but also to give hope to people who have no other hope. And it's also, I think, to help us have confidence in the understanding that, you know, we have the healing sacraments, and one of them is holy oil, holy unction. 
it's not a magic tool. And by God's grace, it might heal someone wholly from leprosy. But to someone else, it can give the courage and the strength and the hope to face the challenges tomorrow. The church and the science are not in conflict. I think the Pope, as a religious figure, has given hope to many people. Now, I'm not, I'm not going to judge him either as a Catholic or I'm not going to judge his positions on issues of social concern, social justice, or anything yeah. like that. I'm looking at him as a pastor. At this point, I did wonder if the Archbishop was making a veiled reference to one of the hottest and most fiercely disputed topics in the Catholic Church and other Western churches right now, which is the pastoral treatment and access to sacraments of openly gay people in Christianity. The Archbishop's comments made it clear that, at least so far as the sacraments were concerned, he's not a liberal on this topic. You can't isolate someone who's a homosexual, male or female, and tell the young man who's 18 years old, go sow your wild seeds. Practice celibacy until the time of marriage. There are limits and boundaries. I think most conservative Christians would agree with that last point. But I suggested that asking gay people to marry people of the opposite sex wasn't necessarily a good idea. It might not turn out very well. And the Archbishop agreed, though he said it did happen in order to obtain a visa, for example, or to hide your sexuality from your family. But then he talked about other examples of impermissible marriages. And it reminded me that the Orthodox do take this question of boundaries very seriously indeed. We've had people who've asked us to perform marriages. We, have, we had an issue recently, a young man cannot understand why the church will not marry him and a young woman whom he loves, and she loves him, and she's Muslim. The church doesn't allow for it. And it's not up to me as an individual to change those things. It's not my right. The church has certain guidelines, rules, regulations, whatever you want to use as terminology, and I'm not above the law. I'm not above the law. The Archbishop made that point several times during our conversation. Is it the sort of thing you hear Anglican and Catholic bishops saying these days? And the answer is that certainly in the case of many American Catholic bishops, we're hearing it rather a lot. They're saying they can't and won't ignore the teaching of the Catholic Church, that radically pro-abortion Catholic politicians can't receive communion. They include, obviously, the second Catholic president of the United States, Joe Biden, a few years ago, it would have been unthinkable that Biden should present himself for communion, and even more unthinkable that left-wing cardinals and a left-wing pope should, as traditionists would see it, effectively put themselves above the law by indicating that local bishops should effectively turn a blind eye to the whole thing. Now, obviously, this isn't Archbishop Nikitas's problem, but he is, after all, American as well as Greek, and I wondered whether, if Biden were orthodox, his radical support for abortion would bar him from the Greek Orthodox sacrament. I mentioned Mike Dukakis, who, back in 1988, was the pro-choice, Greek Orthodox, Democrat candidate for President of the United States. But, said the Archbishop, the question of Dukakis receiving the sacrament wouldn't have arisen. Michael Dukakis was in a different boat, because his wife was Jewish. So they never had a church marriage. And technically, in the Orthodox Church, when one does not have a church marriage, he or she does not receive communion. In the same way that you may not be the godparent 
or the sponsor at a wedding. It's very difficult also to make blanket statements. Would I forbid this person or would I forbid that person? It's very, very difficult because we have the same problems in Greece. If it's an, you consider an Orthodox country with the standards and traditions, yeah. whatever, very high abortion rate. But Biden, there's no gray area. He's stated his position and he hasn't changed it one anything, but he's moved more pro-abortion. I, I understand and I understand your statements. I'm not Catholic and I can't make the... But if you were Orthodox, would you be allowed to... Well, if to he were to come to me for yeah. confession, it depends on the dialogue. He's not interested in... He's not interested no, no, he still in, doesn't he regard it as wrong. He doesn't if, regard if it as he wrong. If he were to come to me for dialogue and say, these are my positions, I have to tell him, well, these are the positions of the church. You know, you should really consider your faith and what you say you believe. Because if we take a commitment and, and you know, take that seriously, make a commitment, how do I stand then before God? And not only before God, before the nation. The surreal and disturbing phenomenon of the pro-abortion Catholic is, of course, something only made possible by the very powerful secularising tendencies beginning to exert a grip on the Catholic Church, just as they've held the Church of England firmly in their grasp for the past few decades. I was keen to know what Archbishop Nikitas made of this secularisation from within, that is, the desperate dancing of leading Western churchmen to the latest secular tune. It's very difficult for Orthodox to, to see this because, you know, we have the understanding that certain things are set in stone, if I might use that expression too. One does not have the right as an individual to alter, to change, to even manipulate the teachings of the church because of a changing world, of a changing society. The truth of the Lord remains forever. And the truth of the church is something which should be unchanging. We don't change the expression of belief and faith. Let me give you a, a very easy example. We as Orthodox Christians receive communion in a very specific way. One chalice, one spoon that is used to distribute the sacrament. And I have taken the stand. That's what we received from the church. That's what we keep and we preserve. Priests do not have the right as individuals, as clergy, to alter those things for one reason or another. And were they trying to? Uh, there were priests who questioned, may we use multiple spoons? And the answer is, of course not. Now, does it say that we don't believe there's a virus or anything like that, or there are conspiracy theories? No, it's just that there are matters of faith, number one, and we hold true to those. Number two, Holy Communion is not forced upon anyone. You approach the challenge because you believe. You have that faith. You have that trust in God. It doesn't mean that the person next to you who has corona or anything else and who might be coughing on you can't transmit it. But we don't believe it's going to be transmitted through the Eucharist. So I held firm on those things. Now, do I agree with the government that people should have worn masks during a certain period of time? When there are mandates from the government about things like wearing masks, we're going to follow that. And we clean the churches and we do all these other things. But when there are issues of real faith and what we believe, you stand up for the truth that you believe in. Otherwise, I'm not an Orthodox. I'm not a hierarch. I'm not true to my calling. It's interesting. It's, it seems a very orthodox thing that the sacred rubrics are so non-negotiable. 
I mean, I'm thinking of the conflicts in orthodoxy in the past over the sign of the cross and things like that. Whereas there's more, there's certainly been a hell of a lot more flexibility in the Catholic Church to the point of chaos, I'd argue. Just a quick question. Do you pick up on a sense that I feel very strongly that all these conflicting messages from the Pope are creating confusion in the Catholic community? If I might even say, not only within the Catholic community, within the greater Christian world. Because if you say Catholicism believes this today, and you see a change tomorrow, then you say, well, what's next? And that must be very difficult for someone who was born, raised, traditional Catholic. It's always very confusing. You know, church doctrine, church messages should be very clear. We believe A and not B. We don't believe a gray area. But the Pope seems to deal in nothing but gray areas. He talks about rigidity and it's well, not about the rules. And I think that there are certain things that are cut and clear. Not in his mind. Well, I don't know in his mind, but I'm telling you, I think in, even in the Orthodox world, you know, the person of Jesus Christ is defined in a specific way. When one goes to confession, though, depending on the confessor and the variables, the penance might alter. That's the gray area I'm talking about. I'm sorry to keep going on about the Pope, but I'm very yeah. keen to hear what you said, because our happiness is at undreamt of levels. Well, let me tell you, there are those who come from the Western traditions who are now seeking, if you want to say, spiritual refuge within Orthodoxy. And we don't want them to come for the wrong reasons. You don't leave your church because you're angry and for negative reasons. You leave, whether it be the Anglican, the Catholic, the Baptist, the Lutheran traditions, because I found something correct and proper within the Eastern Orthodox tradition. My confession, my faith tradition was lacking, and I found fullness. Do you sense that confusion in Catholics, some Catholics? It's difficult because I'm not in touch with the general public that may be Catholic. I'm in touch maybe with clergy or hierarchs, some monastics, you know, and of course, some of things seem very strange to us because we come from a different expression. You know, if you look at fasting, over the years the Catholic Church has altered its ideas of fasting. Even the idea of one hour before the Eucharist is very strange and unfamiliar to us. The loss of fasting even during the Lenten season or the lessening of fasting. I might even talk about the dress of clergy and monastics, especially women monastics. We have the expression, the robes don't make the priest. No, but society knows who we are. And that witness is critical in society. Give you an example of something that's caused probably more distress than anything else was the Pope's decision this year to revoke Pope Benedict's decision to facilitate the ancient Western Latin liturgy, which, okay, is Tridentine Mass, but actually much of it goes back a long way further than that. And now the Pope, this Pope, is trying to stamp it out. And, and from what I understand, a tremendous amount of people have expressed interest in supporting that. What, in, in... Preserving. Because I had Catholic colleagues in the United States. I had six years of Latin. My Catholic colleagues 
had never studied Latin, yeah. many of them, yeah. which I found very strange for two reasons. First of them is for theological reasons. One needs to know the language of theology in his tradition. But I think also if you want to study language, you want to learn grammar, you study Latin. It's not the idea of a romantic expression for something of the past that was nice and whatever. Mm. There's a sacredness and a holiness in the different expressions that we use. And I think that's what may have happened in this case. People felt that different expression. They felt they were stepping out of the world and the mundane into the sacred sphere. It was, it's more analogous to the experience of stepping into an Orthodox church in that sense. Like yes. The contrast yes. between the two, which had broken down to the point where the sense of sacredness in many churches was just miserably lacking. Yes. And so this is a very dispiriting thing, this terrible, terrible decree that he issued, which we hope will be reversed. Have you been aware of people, for whatever reason, showing more interest in converting to orthodoxy in recent years? I, I would say, if we can stop with the converting part, I would say people showing an interest in learning, understanding, researching a great amount of people, and it's for various reasons. You know, when the Iron Curtain fell and people started coming into Europe, the Western world, they came into contact with more Orthodox. And, and I don't mean only the human person, individuals, churches, the idea of icons, Orthodox theologians, and then you had people from the Western, either communions or society, who became Orthodox who showed Western society and Western people that orthodoxy also was for them. So we do have that interest, and we do have people converting to orthodoxy. In the United States, we had entire communities who left the Protestant traditions and became orthodox as a community, as a parish. And we still see that happening in various parts of the world. And here in England, even since I've been here, we've had people baptized and choose to become Orthodox Christians and live as Orthodox in the society and culture. Archbishop Nikitas was painting a beguiling picture of an Orthodox world in which doctrines have not been crudely secularised and liturgies have not been butchered. On the other hand, as I said earlier, it's a very long time since Eastern Orthodoxy has been quite so disunited to the point where Orthodox loyal to the Patriarch of Moscow have been ordered to repudiate the sacramental ministry of the Ecumenical Patriarch and all Orthodox clergy in communion with him. So I had to ask Archbishop Nikitas what he made of this miserable state of affairs. Relationships, the relations between Constantinople and Moscow are so terrible at the moment. Why do you think that is? Well, it's issues over, if you want to say, authority, rights, land even. But when, when the average person comes to me and brings up these issues, I basically tell them, your concern should be your soul and your salvation. And is this helping toward that? I understand. Nonetheless, from my point of view, it's fascinating. Yes. There's always been a problem with the Russian Orthodox relationship with, with the civil regime. And it seems to have resurfaced in a really, really unfortunate way under Putin. Well, let me say a couple of things. First of all, there is no such thing as the Third Rome. There is Rome, and then there is the New Rome. 
There's not the third Rome, and Moscow is not that. Even though they love this dream and this philosophy and this self-promotion. There's old Rome, new Rome. There's not first, second, third, and fourth, yeah. and on down the line. Number two, the Iron Curtain and Tsarist Russia no longer exist. And there is no need to recreate them. People need to be free. We have it in our jurisdiction, in part of our diocese, Russians. Because we want our archdiocese to be multicultural, multi-ethnic, multilingual, living in a civilized, free society. And we were trying to do something different now. And, and that is we're embracing more the celebration of the local saints. The saints who come from Wales, England, Scotland, Ireland, and I wear a, a, a vestment, an epigonatium, for example, and it has St. Patrick on it. On the Antimension, if you know what that is, the liturgical cloth that's used for, for the liturgy, the Venerable Bede is there. St. Cuthbert, St. Columba, Patrick, our own St. Sophroni of our day and age, whom people remember. So we're building this relationship not only with the saints, but with the culture, the identity of the land. And that's critical. People, when they talk about orthodoxy, say that they're very attracted to the mysticism and the mystery. And actually in the Church of England, high churchmen who are anti-Roman would often express it by saying they were pro-orthodox. So for example, Richard Charters, no real friend to the Catholics, Bishop of London, was very pro-orthodox. And in a way, it was sending out a signal that he didn't like Catholics very much. But anyway, the point is, people talk about the mysticism of orthodoxy, and I wonder if you could try and encapsulate what is the essence of the mysticism of orthodoxy that distinguishes it from Western Christian traditions. Well, let me go back first to the other issue. Please remember that I'm born and raised in the United States in a multicultural, multi-religious society. Traditional orthodox lands are predominantly almost all orthodox. So they live in a different environment and understanding and even relationship with the state. I don't believe in state or national churches in that way. So what attracts or what does this mystical experience mean? We're not concerned in knowing about God because human knowledge is finite and limited. We want to unite ourselves to God. And you do so through prayer, especially the prayer of the heart. For we know in the Song of Songs that although I sleep, my heart is vigil. The heart must always be in conversation, relationship with God. That's why St. Paul says to pray without ceasing. That's why anyone should read The Way of the Pilgrim, for example, or the other books, and the very, very beautiful prayer life in the Orthodox Church. You know, you can be a business person and live and work in the world. But once you enter an Orthodox church, the whole world is transfigured and changed. There's a different smell. You look at the icons and you know you're in the company of holy people. You touch or kiss the icons. You receive the sacrament, the taste, the thought, the smell, the sight. Your whole world is different because you've left the world and you've entered the kingdom of God. That was Archbishop Nikitas of Thyatira in Great Britain, the leader of the Greek Orthodox Church in this country, and I'm very grateful to his eminence for finding the time to talk to me. He said so much that was fascinating, but I wonder if 
like me, you were most struck by his horror at the prospect of the use of multiple spoons in the Eucharistic service. You couldn't ask for a better small illustration of the huge gulf that separates the Christianity of the West and the East. The notion that you can't tamper with the intricacies of the rubrics without interfering with the Church's divine mission is alien to all but a tiny minority of Western Christians. That minority being, of course, those Latin Rite Christians who are currently being persecuted by their own Pope for celebrating ancient liturgies that are meticulously preserved by tradition. They, like the Orthodox and other Eastern churches, present us with the intriguing possibility that ostensibly inflexible ceremonial preserves aspects of the very earliest Christian worship, which, after all, must have been heavily influenced by Temple Judaism. Indeed, you could go further and say that the Orthodox and traditional Catholic insistence on making churches truly sacred spaces, the absolute antithesis of the cringe-making messy church, as it calls itself, on offer in parts of the Church of England, reflects an understanding of the basic anthropology of worship that authentic Christianity, whether it likes it or not, shares with other great non-Christian religions. The problem is that even if that's true, there's depressing little evidence that safeguarding Christian tradition provides an antidote to secularization. Greece, for example, was once the most religiously observant country in mainland Europe. But now church attendance is falling away in much the same manner as it is in, say, France. And essentially for the same reason. People prefer to stay in bed on a Sunday morning because they don't believe the same stuff that their parents did. And yet, as I said goodbye to Archbishop Nikitas, I experienced a faint but unfamiliar flicker of optimism. Over the past 30 years, I've met all the leaders of the Anglican and Catholic churches in this country, and what nearly all of them had in common was a deeply ingrained mediocrity. The exceptions were Rowan Williams, though sadly only at the beginning of his ministry as Archbishop of Canterbury, and the late and much-missed Archbishop of Westminster, Cardinal Basil Hume. Now, Hume remains a somewhat controversial figure because he initiated many unhelpful changes in the running of the Catholic Church in this country, and, if we're to judge him purely by statistics, didn't achieve much more than the elegant management of decline. But it didn't feel that way, because Hume possessed that mysterious gift that we know as charisma, the essence of which, you could argue, is the ability to persuade people that anything is possible, even something as counterintuitive as the revival of 21st century Christianity. And I mention this because, admittedly, on the basis of just one conversation, I think Nikitas may have it too. Which would be appropriate, because charisma is, after all, a Greek word. <laughs>